Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This episode is part of a mini-series on some bad habits that law students may encounter. If you're interested in learning more about procrastination and our experience with it, check out our previous episode. This week, we'll be exploring one of the bad habits that potentially plagues all students, imposter syndrome. We share with you our experiences, as well as some tips and tricks to keep imposter syndrome at bay during law school. And so to start, it's important that we let you guys know what imposter syndrome actually is. And it's important to note that although we will be focusing on imposter syndrome in law school and how to combat it in law school, imposter syndrome imposter syndrome can arise in many different environments. Um, so of course, other academics environments, if you're doing graduate degrees or different things like that, but it can also arise in a professional setting, um, sometimes in extracurriculars or hobbies or things like that that you're involved in. And hopefully the tricks that we're gonna be giving, giving you will help you combat imposter syndrome in those other settings as well. I feel like they are easily transferable. And so imposter syndrome in general is a condition of feeling anxious, of course, and you don't experience success internally, despite the fact that externally or what other people would tell you is that you are high performing objectively. But it's how we subjectively feel about our own accomplishments and about what we're actually doing. And often the most common thing that you'll hear from people who are actually experiencing imposter syndrome is that they feel like they're a fraud. They feel like they're a phony. They feel like they don't deserve to be where they are. And so they're doubting their abilities and, and their qualities and their performance more generally. Um, of course, there's different signs of imposter syndrome. So if you identify any of these in yourself or in your friends, hopefully that kind of gives you an idea to uh, try to implement what we'll be talking about today. Um, but one big thing is you're going to be feeling unworthy of success. So even if you are achieving success objectively, let's say you're getting different awards, you're getting accolades, people are telling you how well you're doing, you don't feel like that's something that you deserve. You feel potentially that it was because of luck or reasons external to yourself so it's not something that you actually achieved or you actually did combined to that oftentimes you're going to start dismissing any positive feedback you're going to over prepare feel doomed from the start that regardless of what you're going to be doing and despite all of the effort that you're putting in you're not going to be able to achieve what you want and um, another important thing is you're going to be afraid that other people are going to recognize that you shouldn't be there and that you're a fraud. Um, so there's that that fear that you're going to be outed in some way. And in terms of causes of imposter syndrome, I think this is really interesting because some people will feel it slowly creeping in, whereas um, I know for myself at least, <laughs> that kind of feeling could be <laughs> apparent from even like before you're starting. So for instance, you know, uh, in between myself finishing the graduate degree and then transitioning to law school, uh, you know, you have a couple months in between. And that kind of feeling of imposter syndrome very much began to manifest within those couple of months. So that's what I think is kind of interesting to note is that imposter syndrome can often take place well before you start something. 
in almost an anticipatory kind of way. Um, so in any case, one possible cause can be, you know, when you start new things. Uh, tons of people believe that um, you know, when they're starting new things compared to when they see people who might have some experience, uh, those people will seem like they know exactly how things work, they know exactly where to go, exactly what to do, and you're feeling like you have to spend all this effort just trying to figure out the logistics. So for instance, you know, at law school, when you see some of the 2L or the 3L students, they seem quite happy in that they know exactly the kinds of courses they want to do, exactly the summer placements they want to do. I mean, quite literally, they know this, the actual layout of the school better than you do. And so that creates this kind of um, heightened experience of confusion. Um, something that I will say is that you should note that they all started that way, right? You, the experience that you have starting off is also the experience they had when they started off. Another cause of imposter syndrome can be um, if you come from a family without the kind of general uh, generational experience uh, in the thing that you are doing, in the career that, that you are doing, in the hobby that you are doing. So being the first person in your family to do something without that kind of legacy can also create this uh, feeling that you are doomed from the start and that any success that you can have is attributed to just pure luck because you don't have that um, experience, you don't have that proof within your family. Um, and then there's other causes as well. So for instance, if you know that you're someone who is quite socially anxious or neurotic or you have tendencies of perfectionism, I know that law school, those kinds of feelings and traits are often pretty apparent in many, many students. And it is interesting because law school can, I think, draw people where when they have that kind of personality, it leads to things like posturing and throat clearing and overcomplicating and overachieving. And when you combine a bunch of these people with these kinds of bad habits, it tends to really intensify the feeling of uh, the need to overachieve and the need for high pressure, which can exacerbate your, uh, your imposter syndrome. And something else too is that I think particularly with law school, or I, I'm sure medical students or engineering students feel the same way, when you feel like your degree is relatively short and that you will you know, be in and out before you know it, it, this leads to the feeling that, at least for me, the fear that I, I'm just not going to have the time it takes to actually learn anything or do well at all. Um, I think also, if you think about law, it can be a very, very expensive degree. So this idea of wanting to do well, uh, at least I feel, um, you know, I don't want to waste the money. I don't want to disappoint people who are helping me to finance this degree. Um, and so that kind of anxiety can also contribute to the intensification of imposter syndrome. And I would say as a reminder to everyone, law school is very theoretical. And that's something that's been talked about, that's been shown. It's not just me saying it. And so a lot of the time when you're going to go into the workforce and you're going to start at a firm or in whichever position that you choose, um, whether it be for your full on career or during, let's say, summer placements, it's normal that you're not going to know what you're doing. And just know that the people that are going to be supervising you do expect that. 
and it's possible that, for example, you're go you'll be going into a summer placement where your focus is going to be on, let's say, capital markets and corporate law. And you haven't touched on that at all in your first year, except maybe with contract law, if it just so happens that you're dealing with some contracts. And it can be very intimidating because depending on the background that you had coming into law school, it's possible that you don't have any financial knowledge, let's say knowledge and investment. You probably didn't work as a banker. Some may have, but let's just say for the majority, probably haven't. Um, and so that's something that, uh, for example, was worrying me uh, since I do want to go into corporate law, but I've been speaking to upper year students. And one thing that I've noticed is not only one, they experienced and felt the same thing, uh, but two, it's not going to affect your performance, your ability to get any of those jobs and your ability to do well when you're actually working full time, because everyone with a few minor exceptions is going to be starting at the same baseline as you without that knowledge. And you're going to be learning as you go. And that happens, I would say, for most areas of law. Uh, so just a, a little thing to, to try to remember when you're at that stage. Sarah, would you also say, particularly because you uh, have a very good idea of the kind of law you want to go into, the kind of career you want to go into, but you also want to go into, I think what a lot of people would consider to be quite a high stakes, um, you know, intense area of law. And I, I would say that, you know, for people who are interested in going into criminal law, maybe a similar uh, kind of reasoning can be applied. Do you feel sometimes too that you get worried that if you make mistakes or if you're not really the right person, you would be affecting, I think, a lot of people, right? Like the, your kind of lack of a good performance would be affecting, you know, um, a lot of people significantly in this high stakes profession. I, oh, I, for sure. I wonder if I'm articulating that correctly, right? Like I, I can imagine people who want to go into like criminal law or family, family law, they're thinking, if I don't really belong here, I'm going to be really hurting people who are relying upon me. Yes, for sure. And I think, unfortunately, that's also kind of emphasized by some of the stories that we hear, even from professors. Just an example, in my legal research and writing class, I know that there was a big kind of story that the professor told us about this one student who had used the legal research software to conduct research in a way that it cost, I think, 10000 to $20,000 for one search for the firm. And of course, this is going to depend on the firm you're working at. So please, people, don't worry. A lot of firms, especially if you're going for a big firm, don't have that restriction. They're going to pay for full access. So this was a smaller firm. But I know that this was something that professors were emphasizing. And I feel like that just adds additional pressure because, to be quite honest, although we have a general kind of training for how to conduct proper research and the keywords and everything like that, it's not extensive. It's not exhaustive, and I feel like it would be easy for any of us to be in the situation of that student. So I think what's important is really just to keep the conversation open with the supervisors and the people that are there to support you. And although I feel like sometimes we're a bit reluctant to ask for help, I think it's important, and I think that it's not going to minimize how capable you are or how qualified you are. In fact, I think for the most part, it looks a lot better to reach out when you need help than to kind of ignore it and to have something big happen. 
And so doing those checkups, especially at the beginning, I think is a way not only to prevent potentially some of these mistakes from happening, but also reassure yourself to know that you're doing it well and you're going in the right direction. And then eventually you can ease off that support and you won't need it as much. That sounds really good. And and what are some other ways to combat this kind of imposter syndrome? Yes. Yeah, so one thing, and, and this is a really hard one, but it's an important one, is simply to be able to accept that you can't be an expert or a genius or, you know, the most knowledgeable at everything all at once, all the time. And I know how hard that is. I myself, a lot of times, would even prevent myself from getting involved in things if I didn't think I was going to be naturally gifted at them. That's something I did a lot as a child and I'm trying to kind of get out of the habit of. But let's say I was really interested in starting dance. If, because I had no experience in dance, and I'm not necessarily a naturally flexible person or different things like that. I was like, I'm not going to do it because I'm obviously going to look out of place. Um, I'm not going to perform as well as everyone else versus if I was looking into things as running or other sports, I was like, okay, that's similar enough to what I was doing before playing soccer because I, I played a lot of soccer as a child. Then I was more willing to go into it because I felt like I would be, I would have a competitive advantage in some way. And I've realized that unfortunately that was really limiting myself from experiences and also from learning and from growth. And it's, it's important, although it's stressful and it's scary to expose yourself to opportunities where you might fail. You might not be the best at what you're doing, but the lessons that you're going to learn are actually going to be probably the most valuable ones. At least that, that's what's happened for me so far. And something that's interesting, too, is I feel like when you're in a profession like law, the more you specialize, the more you truly cannot be a genius in every single topic like that, I think, is logistically impossible. And that's why, you know, firms and, you know, um, you know, different kinds of practices incorporate lawyers and experts from all sorts of different backgrounds and they have colleagues and they have acquaintances and they have, you know, people that they know that they can consult who are specialists in those fields that they don't know, right? And I think to some extent, if you are interested in getting into high stakes and specialized areas of law, the moment you think that you can have that degree of specialty in every single facet, I think would be to prevent you from even accomplishing that first goal. Oh, I agree. And it actually plays into, I feel like, the fact that the law community is, is very tight-knit. And like we were talking about in our networking episode, it's important to at least remain in kind of relatively good terms with all of your classmates because you're probably going to be working with them in the future. And it kind of falls into that because as a lawyer, you're oftentimes going to encounter situations where people are reaching out and asking you for help and you just can't because it's not your area of expertise and you're going to be able you're going to have to refer them out right and uh, I feel like like you said that's kind of just a natural part of the work because there's just so much to know <laughs> and very kind of exceptional cases and things that are more how do I say that special hidden whatnot that you're not going to know just with a general knowledge of the specific area of law so that's definitely important. 
Other than that, I think what's really important to combat imposter syndrome, which we've touched on a little bit, is really to reach out to others. So of course it can be classmates, but also mentors, other individuals in the profession, ask them to recall their own experience. Let's say now you're in 1L, you feel like an imposter, ask them how it was in 1L. And I feel like it's better granted to potentially reach out to someone who recently graduated because that way they're going to have a better recollection of what actually happened in 1L of both the positives and negatives and not necessarily have this kind of rose-colored memory of it. Um, I noticed that that helped me a lot actually when I started reaching out to recent graduates or even upper years. Um, sometimes I realized that I was even doing more than they said they were doing at this stage and not that that's important um, I don't care if I'm doing more or the same or anything like that, but oftentimes I feel like there's this idea or this feeling that you're not doing enough. And so that was really kind of an eye opener for me that, oh, okay, I am actually doing enough and maybe even more than they did. And they, I look up to them. They did exceptionally well in law school. So I shouldn't beat myself up and try to do more and more and more because that doesn't necessarily mean or equate to my success because obviously they succeeded and they didn't have to do all of that. And I think if you're having trouble finding um, mentors or finding uh, folks who have recently graduated that you can talk to, I know that at the University of Toronto, they have a couple of um, peer mentorship programs um, through, uh, you know, involving current students, but then also involving uh, recent graduates. So I would, if your school already has not advertised these, I would definitely consult your student services uh, or like a registrar or some kind of dean in order to get these sources. Because I think at least in a Canadian um, setting, they're quite uh, proactive about making these kinds of programs. So I would definitely check your emails or reach out if if it's not apparent. Oh, no, I agree. I would say not only do they have the general kind of mentorship programs, but I've also noticed that almost every single club or extracurricular that you get involved in has their own specific mentorship program. And of course, the main goal is to help you navigate your responsibilities in that specific role. But a lot of the time, if you ask them general questions about law school, they are not opposed to helping you. They know how it was. And so I got a lot of insight that way, even from people that were supposed to be mentoring me, let's say specifically for law review. I think so. And I, I think another aspect on how to combat imposter syndrome um, is to find other things outside of school and work to be an expert in. I really think that, you know, um, if you're in a degree like law or medicine, I highly recommend that you actively do things that are completely unrelated and, and try not to find some kind of connection or relation to to your program or to your profession. So for instance, you know, I have been working a lot on piano and I've been working a lot on developing recipes and learning to swim and doing different kinds of exercise. Um, and I try my very hardest to not make any kind of connection, to not form any kind of connective tissue with law school. Because I really do think that whenever I'm struggling at law school or I'm feeling downtrodden or I'm feeling stressed about it, it feels amazing to 
be able to detach from that and to do something else that I feel confident in, that I've had quite a bit of experience in, that I am perhaps not a you know formal expert, but I, I have developed a good amount of knowledge and experience in. And something else that I want to speak about that um, I have been thinking a lot about when it comes to imposter syndrome is this idea that um, this idea of being a virtuoso or being a genius. And I think that it's important for listeners to bear in mind that that's actually a very recent phenomenon, right? It, it's only taken place in maybe the last 100 years or so, which, you know, might seem to be a long time, but I think in the grand scheme of history is 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 fairly recent. And what that means is that, you know, people from like 100 years before that considered themselves to be really successful, not by being a master in one trade, but by being pretty familiar with things in general, right? Jack of all trades, that saying. So I think that it is important to break out of this mindset that for you to be a successful lawyer or doctor or engineer or teacher or something, you have to make that your entire personality and you have to only be a really good lawyer or doctor, or engineer or teacher, or whatever it is, right? I think the ability to detach your professional aspirations and skills with other facets of yourself, um, that is, in my opinion, a really good way to, to mitigate imposter syndrome. Yeah, I agree. I think that's great advice, Meg. <laughs> I think we can definitely move on now to kind of our own experiences um, and and what has helped. Um, because, Sarah, I really like what you said about when you were younger being quite hesitant to take part in activities where you, you kind of go, okay, I, I have not built that kind of foundation. Um, I would rather tend towards um, areas that I already know I have some confidence in. I don't think that's necessarily a bad uh, mindset to have. However, I do agree that in the grand scheme of things, the more narrow that kind of mindset becomes, the more difficult uh, it is to try new things and to actually learn to be good at things. Um, and exactly. I, and I think that's such a classic gifted kid syndrome. I think, you know, it's really unfortunate <laughs> because... You know, sometimes if you've been identified as gifted as, as a kid, um, you're really encouraged to excel and to work on things that you are kind of quote unquote naturally good at. And everything else that you're not good at, you're encouraged to just sweep to the wayside. And that is really unfortunate, I think. Um, and for me, completely agree with Sarah, definitely the, the mindset. And, and as a result, I think I often struggle with being very prideful and, and proud. I hate being wrong. I hate being um, bad at things, especially publicly being bad at things. I want to do well all the time. If I'm not good, I'm going to give up. And when you're working in a field like law, where I think so many different um, kind of subfields of law touch and encroach upon each other, right? You know, when you're dealing with something like family law, how does that not also affect property? How does that not also affect contracts? How does that not also affect constitutional rights and stuff like that, right? And the moment um, you go, okay, well, I'm only really good in this one area, or I'm really only naturally interested in this one area, I'm going to push everything else to the wayside. I think that's a really difficult, that's a dangerous way to approach these things. Um, I have to admit that when I got my initial couple of grades back, I was like, oh, I really did not think 
I really did not think I was going to do this uh, kind of mediocre. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, and, and I'll definitely talk more about this in our, in our next episode with, you know, dealing with rejection, dealing with failure. But f- there was this tendency for me to go, I should be a lot better than this because I've had all this experience with reading and writing. Um, but I think that's, again, kind of a dangerous mentality to have. I think a bit of a humility, a bit of going, oh, well, even though I have had a lot of experience with reading and writing, I have not had really any experience with this particular kind of reading and writing. And so the moment I can comfortably accept that and go, first off, these are just some of the initial grades. I have a lot to learn and I'm going to really internalize the feedback and try again and focus specifically on these areas of improvement. To me, that has really helped with this um, kind of um, prima facie. What a terrible term to use. (laughs) (laughs) With this kind of immediate kind of inherent imposter syndrome. Um, I think some degree of reflection, taking a step back, going, okay, let's let's assume that... um, let's assume that I am actually definitely a novice in this. What are some concrete things that I can do? That has really helped out. As well as I think prioritizing hobbies, allowing myself to feel really bad, um, but then actively saying, I'm going to move on from this because there's no point in dwelling and purposefully sulking and and feeling terrible all the time. I need to move on. Uh, But Sarah, what has been your experience um, so far with imposter syndrome and helping mitigate that? Yeah. So one thing that I find interesting is when you mentioned that idea of humility, I think humility is important, but there also needs to be a balance. One thing that I tended to do is to downplay all of my accomplishments, whether they were hard to achieve or not to me. Oh, no, that's just to be expected. It's normal. It's everyone can do this. Right. And um, that's something that actually I did almost unconsciously. And I noticed, for example, when I first attended a convocation, and this was not my convocation, but I realized how few people, for example, were graduating with honors and graduating with the different titles, magna, summa cum laude, all those things. And it kind of made me realize like, oh, okay, maybe it isn't as easy as I'm trying to make it out to be. And I should be proud of myself for achieving this. Um, Same thing a bit when I got my governor general's award. I was kind of like, no one knows what it is anyways. It's not going to bring me anything in the long run, career-wise, whatnot. And what that made me realize is just that it's really important to celebrate your own successes. Honestly, it doesn't matter how big or small others think the accomplishment is. It's important for you to take the time to celebrate yourself because unfortunately, we don't always have the support of others um, and other people aren't always going to be there to lift us up and, and to kind of make us feel proud of what we have, we've accomplished. And sometimes we have to do it ourselves. And I think that's something that's uh, very, very important that I tended to kind of neglect. Um, and now I'm trying to do better at. <laughs> sometimes it's hard too if you, if you're from um, families where, you know, you don't have that kind of direct legacy if they don't understand what that scholarship is, they don't understand what that degree means, they don't understand what that title means, they don't understand what, you know, sp- you know so on and so forth. Um, sometimes it almost feels, I think, that <laughs> the kind of support from your family and friends who don't have that direct experience can feel a little disingenuous or a little lackluster. Yes. And it's hard. I, I don't think you should, you know, 
by any means fault them or antagonize them but it's easy then to kind of also go oh i guess it's not that big of a deal whereas um you know it is a big it is a big deal if you do well exactly a big deal. and i feel like also for probably a lot of people in in law school um if you've been used to achieving and performing at some point it becomes an expectation it's an expectation that you're going to do well. It's an expectation that you're going to succeed. And sometimes not even an expectation that you have, but an expectation that other have of you. And what I found that does is that anything less than doing something perfectly becomes a failure. And that also to contribute, I feel like that also contributes to downplaying all of these successes because you're expected to get them. So no one's going to be really celebrating with you because it's like, oh yeah, of course, of course you would get that. Of course you would do that. Um, and then again, I'm sorry, listeners, for repeating this, but this is really my my motto. One thing that's really helped me with imposter syndrome is really that fake it till you make it. Even if I don't think that I can do it, I'm going to portray myself as someone that knows what I'm doing and I'm going to pretend that I do until I'm actually able to. Now, pretending that I do is not to the point of if I'm unsure about something, not asking for help or anything like that. It's just walking in with the mentality that I can do anything. Even if I haven't done this before, I can do it. I just need to work hard. I just have to learn how to do it. I just have to put my mind to it. So it's not thinking that I'm going to do it perfectly the first time and not looking into how to do it correctly, but it's more this idea that I can do what I set my mind to do. I really like that. I think that should be repeated more often. I'm, I would not condemn that, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> and I think it's important too, because this idea of saying, you know, I can do anything I put my mind to, that's, I completely agree. That's not to say it's, I can do anything I put my mind to immediately or as well as the person next to me or um, the best in the world, right? Like having that kind of mantra you do not need to add all of these little caveats to it where it exactly. makes it even more difficult, right? It really can be, you know, I want to learn how to swim. That means that even if it takes me a couple of years, even if I'm not, I don't become an Olympic swimmer, I know how to swim. I feel more comfortable in the water, right? That can be um, this kind of faking it until you make it. Or I really want to practice this kind of law. It doesn't mean that you're going to go to Harvard. It doesn't mean that you're going to get a perfect 180. It really, you know, I think if you have all of these little caveats, you will never be happy. However, if that's truly something that you want, I think that if it takes you a couple years or it's something that you work on throughout your life to become to become a specialist in it, that's the kind of, you know, fake it till you make it kind of mindset and, and, and putting, putting that kind of desire first um, that I think that Sarah's getting at very well. Um, Definitely. And I think it plays into a bit what we're going to cover in our next episode as well uh, with rejection that I think it's really important to set realistic um, expectations and objectives for ourselves. Because as soon as we kind of go away from that, I feel like it's so much easier to just identify everything as being a failure. Exactly. So with that, let's let's end this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. Um, like Sarah mentioned, next week uh, we are going to have the last episode of the, uh, the three-part series on how to deal with rejection. Uh, we're also going to be 
wrapping up uh, the kind of pre-recorded part of our first season. So we'll have a couple of December specials about how to prep for exams and our reflections on our first semester of law school, but those will be um, released in December. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, um, share on our social media, at Beyond the Briefcase Podcast. Our Instagram. Uh, to keep up with any um, episodes, to keep in touch, to share with us your thoughts and experiences. Um, thank you so much, Adam, our technical producer. And thank you, listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye.